Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the letter uh, that we've been looking at these last few weeks, the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, today we're going to be looking at a few verses starting in chapter 2. How many of you are glad that we're finally made it to chapter 2? Thank you. That's right. Chapter 2 begins today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, uh, Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Uh, as, we, as we look at this little part of, um, you know, this very long letter, uh, let's remember the context in which uh, these particular words were written. Uh, a few weeks ago, we began kind of the section dealing with a theme of division and disunity uh, that was becoming one of the most glaring features of the Corinthian church. Um, among all of the characteristics, you know, if you were to, uh, to attend or to visit uh, this particular church at this particular time, one of the characteristics you might have walked away with is, wow, it, 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 seems to, it seems to be this group of people in which there are lots of different factions and some, um, some pretty heady personalities, um, all of which are, you know, kind of trying to headline the event of the gathering. It, it was, it was kind of chaotic, um, not really sure uh, that there was any real, you know, organization um, or unity. Um, and the problem was because of this division that was rearing its head uh, in the church at Corinth. The body, right, as the body is a, an analogy used to describe the church, the body of Christ, uh, right? Because the body is a singular entity, right? You have one body, I have one body. Uh, but the body is comprised of lots of different parts, right, that all work together, that together make up the body and um, uh, live out the functions of the body. So it's a really great analogy to describe the body of Christ or the church because the church, um, as it was intended, as it was designed, as it was conceptualized in the mind of Jesus himself, the church is a singular entity comprised of many parts, right? We are one body, but there's lots of us here that ultimately compose this one singular body. But in Corinth, the body wasn't acting like a body, right? Uh, the division was such that this singular body was not so singular, right? It had taken on the form of multiple bodies, each of which uh, was probably pining for supremacy over and against the other bodies or factions that were forming. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the central message, uh, which Paul again brings up here in chapter two, this, 
central message of the cross, right? Here Paul talks about the singular message of Christ crucified. And that central message, that most important thing was, it was in danger of kind of fading off into the sunset. Um, The church was becoming more about what differentiated the people who were there instead of the very thing that was supposed to unite them. Now listen, we can uh, can spend a lot of time talking about and comparing and contrasting the differences that exist among each of us, right? And those differences are vast. But what is more important than the differences, the things that differentiate us from one another, is the thing that unifies us, that brings us together and makes us that one singular body. That is Christ and him crucified. So not only was there this division, but then the resulting faith, which I imagine at one point, like in its earliest days, was probably founded in and grounded on God's power, right? God's power that was being demonstrated within that community. It was now being grown toward something else, right? The body wasn't acting like the body. So we have to ask ourselves, as we look to the example of uh, the church in Corinth and, you know, some of the, some of the failures there or the mess that uh, really had kind of set in in their church, we have to ask ourselves, what is our faith going to be based on? Because uh, that's in verse 5 here, uh, Paul talks about from where he wants our faith to originate and um, on which he wants our faith to be based. And so what is our faith going to be based on? Um, so let's talk about the manner in which the gospel is communicated, because obviously a pretty significant function of the church is to communicate the gospel, right? You can imagine that uh, the church was formed for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which, one of those great reasons is so that uh, the believers, right, who are unified by the lordship of Jesus, um, those believers have uh, a community of others that they can depend on, that they can receive support from, and that they can also contribute to. Uh, A church that is healthy and functioning as it ought to, it should, one of the characteristics of that church should be, well, hey, we have a group of people here who, while to some extent they are living separate lives, um, there is a greater sense in which their lives are connected to one another. Right? That these people have found a community that they can depend on a community that they can find support from and a community that they can contribute to. Does that not sound like a pretty cool church to go to or to be a part of? Um, This is not the only function of the church. Okay, uh, of course, the the church is also um, given custody of the faith that was deposited into the lives of the apostles, right, by our Lord Jesus himself, and then disseminated from that point on um, a, a 
a feature that is an ongoing feature of the church even today. That is, we continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. So listen to what Paul says with regard to the manner in which that gospel was being communicated. He said in verse one, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Right, and this is a theme we saw coming up in chapter one where he talked about this, right? That Paul wasn't depending on a worldly kind of wisdom or uh, these persuasive words in order to make converts. So he did not come with brilliant speech or wisdom. Verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? The, the message was very simple in its form, very centralized in its, um, in its importance. Verse three, I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Verse four, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. So those who would communicate the gospel have to ask themselves, right? As, as, um, as I'm sure Paul was tempted to do it some other way. Uh, so not only Paul, but those that would follow after the kind of the pattern um, of preaching and the proclamation of God's word, we all have to ask ourselves, do I want to satisfy my desire for applause or do I want to fulfill my obligation to tell the most important truths? Right, so for Paul, what was essential was not to win a popularity contest with the words that he was proclaiming. What was important to Paul was that people heard the message of Christ and him crucified. Regardless of how popular or unpopular that was going to make him. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, right, you'll find Paul um, going from place to place. And prior to his arrival in Corinth, he had kind of a miserable failure in one place. How many of you know that sometimes where the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, it is proclaimed and the outcome looks like on the surface, it looks like failure because of the lack of response or because of the, just the utter rejection with which the gospel is treated. Um, and so as we're thinking about the the manner in which we want to proclaim the gospel, um, I was thinking there, there, are, there are at least three potential ways a preacher may communicate or the, or the members of a church may communicate uh, this precious thing we call the gospel. The first one is uh, telling a falsehood that earns favor in the public eye. Now, who doesn't want to be applauded, right? Who doesn't want to earn the favor of others? Who doesn't want to rise in popularity, right? Most of us do. But Paul, he said he avoided persuasive words of wisdom, right? He recognized that there was a certain kind of communication he could bring to the table that would prove popular. And isn't it interesting that um, the churches, they can have, um, you know, uh, 
they can have a tendency sometimes to kind of move away from the central message of the cross. Um, There are undoubtedly churches that have, in fact, moved away from the cross and have become more interested or have um, made it a higher priority to delve into uh, you know, spiritual and perhaps human interest topics that are more tolerable for the average appetite. That is, um, some would communicate a kind of religion that lacks what Paul, I think, would describe as the power of God which accompanies it. And you can, believe it or not, you can actually build an organization on that. You can, you, can build, you can build something you would call a church on, um, on topics of human interest, um, of even spiritual interest, that lack a commitment to the central message of Christ and him crucified. And normally, this form of the gospel, the way it takes form is not just like outright denial of truth, but oftentimes something more like half-truths. Something like, again, a, a, a reforming of the gospel so that uh, so that the, like in our context, so that the modern mind can find it more tolerable, right? Because the reality is, just like it was in the days of Corinth. Remember when we, we talked about um, the reality of the cross, how for the Jews, it was offensive. For the Greeks, it was, um, uh, it, it was foolishness, right? It was just, In Paul's day, the message of the cross was not very palatable for much of those who heard it. Same goes today, right? Like, I mean, you can can proclaim the pure message of the gospel and find that it just, it doesn't always yield the results you want. And so there has, um, there has been, as there always will be, a, a potential for, for, for whole churches to move away from that central message. Um, you know, this telling a falsehood that earns favor in the public eye, it plays well to those who prefer uh, to listen to a convenient lie instead of an inconvenient truth, right? A truth that would require an uncomfortable change of heart. Um, uh, If we were honest, I think we'd all probably agree that it is easier sometimes for us to hear and assimilate a lie that sounds good than it is for us to deal with the truth of what is because of the change that may be required on our part, right? So that's one way, telling a falsehood. that perhaps kind of has an appearance of, um, of religion, like the Bible might describe it as, you know, having a form of religion, but denying the power of God. A second way in which I think the gospel is sometimes communicated is when 
um, the truth is told, but that truth is coded in pride and it lacks empathy. Um, some of you may perhaps have experienced, you know, this kind of gospel telling um, and, and, and you, didn't, you didn't find a whole lot of, um, you didn't find a whole lot of satisfaction in it. The reason for that is because um, this kind of telling, the, 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 the telling of the truth if, you, if, if you've ever done this, you know, perhaps you could be uh, introspective enough to, to admit that this was the case. But uh, when the truth is told and that truth is like coded in pride and it lacks empathy toward the person uh, to whom the truth is being told, most often it is being told for the benefit of the teller rather than the hearer, right? There are... Um, there are preachers who have made names for themselves by their proclamation of the truth done in this way. Um, that that truth telling is done, again, like they're, they're perhaps being faithful to the truth um, in, the, in, the, in the literal words that are being used to tell that truth. But the spirit is such that um, it, is, it is being done far more for their benefit than it is for the hearers. Um, at worst, I think, um, whether it's a preacher or, um, or a, a church goer, a Christian, uh, who, who just, like, they want to be right, right? Like, the most important thing is not um, really anything other than just being right, uh, you know, a lot of times it can just come off as a loudmouth, um, as, as somebody who um, other people are going to be repulsed in listening to. Like I, you know, it's the the spirit in which the truth can sometimes be conveyed can actually be repulsive. Um, it carries an air of you know, like, well, look how good I am. <laughs> uh, at best, and and um, which of us have not fallen? pray to this from time to time, you know, at best it can, be, it can be motivated by a sincere impulse to do what is morally right, right? Like, the, again, the, the idea is like, all right, I have this, I have this truth. <laughs> I've discovered this truth. I have committed my life to this truth that is essentially important to my life. And I believe ought to be essentially important for everybody else as well, right? Like, that's, that's this thing that I'm kind of holding on to that I have you know, buried in my heart. My whole life, hopefully, is, you know, um, committed to and centered on, um, on that truth. And I want other people to know about it because there's, there's actually, there's, there's real things at stake, right? Like whether or not somebody embraces this truth for themselves is gonna, like it's going to have eternal consequences. And so, um, and so sometimes we can be motivated to proclaim that truth, right? And again, those, those motivations can sometimes be sincere, right? Like this idea that I have a moral duty to tell the truth. Um, but what happens sometimes is we fall into like this savior complex, right? Where it, it's my job to save the world, where it's my job to save 
the souls of men and women. And this becomes a real problem because I have, I possess no power to save the souls of men and women. Nor do you. Right? And so when I, when, I, when I live with a savior complex, that is, you know, when I see error, I need to speak out and rail out against it. And it's, and it's done with a spirit and an attitude of pride, of arrogance, and, and that lacks empathy for the people um, whose lives it may contradict. I'm afraid it's just oftentimes not very effective. And, and, and unfortunately, this thing called the church has a lot of times become more known for that, right? When you, when you hear the church being accused of, um, of uh, you know, you walk around the street and you put a microphone in front of people and you say, you know, what, what comes to mind when you think of the church? You know, and the person says, well, you know, it's just, it, it's a, it, that's a place very judgmental. Ought that, be, ought, ought that be the thing for which we are known? I mean, like, regardless of if, if it's actually a fair characterization or not, right? And, um, and we could argue as to whether it's even a fair characterization. I mean, it may not be. Um, but that person who is, who is saying that, uh, perhaps they've experienced that. Perhaps they've, you know, they've come from a... Uh, an experience of being in a religious community that it just it was just so utterly judgmental, and those doing the judging were just so full of pride and arrogance and and lacked empathy that it created segregation in and among the church right so you know that's that's a that's a real problem um, now Paul you know some of us might think well it's like well you know Paul said some very very telling things. Right? Paul made some very bold proclamations, and it's true, he did. You know, Paul, um, like in, in the letters especially that we read, I mean, Paul, Paul said some pretty bold things. Um, but, you know, what's interesting about Paul is that he also, with those things, he shared, he shared alongside, right? Because what we're talking about is not the problem of speaking truth, but speaking the truth in a certain way. Um, when Paul proclaimed the truth, along with that truth, along with those proclamations, he shared some things about himself. You know, like when, if, if Paul had to look into the eyes of a sinner, of a wicked person, and, and, um, and share with them the gospel, instead of this, right? Instead of the finger pointing, the finger wagging, instead of the, you know, grab the bullhorn and just kind of scream as loud as you can into the ears of this person that just needs to hear it. You know what Paul did? Paul, Paul, what Paul did was Paul said, let me tell you about the Christ and him crucified, right? He begins to talk about the Savior. And, 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 Paul, and Paul would say, let me you know what this Savior, like, let me tell you a little bit about me. Paul said, I murdered people. <laughs> like, I, right? He like, said, I, I tore through families 
I, I wrecked homes. I ruined people's lives. You know, and I can say this with, I can say this with real honesty. Like, I had regretted that I myself didn't have the hammer and the nails with which to crucify this Jesus that I'm now telling you about. Can you imagine the gospel being shared in that way, right? The, the message of Christ crucified. Let, let, me, let me tell you what Jesus means to me. That, that moves away from the savior complex, right? Like, I, I've got to fix this immoral person. I've got to fix this wicked person or this wicked way of thinking. I wonder if instead of barking righteousness at someone, we were called to love them and to care for their needs and treat them for the human being that they are to speak when invited and to love them even if they ignore, reject, or hurt us in return. And so we come to, the, I think, the way that Paul would have us communicate the gospel, and that is to tell the truth in humility and compassion accompanied by God's power. Um, I can't control what every church in the world does. I can't, I, I really can't speak into how, um, how people lead congregations. And so my interest, you know, largely centers on Curtis Lake Christian Church, right? This church, this body of people right here. What I want for us to do is I want for us to tell the truth to not be ashamed of it, to proclaim the gospel in such a way that it is done with humility and with compassion and accompanied by God's power. You see, this kind of telling of the gospel, it understands why a hearer may not be able to hear or bear the message. It'll, it, it, it allows for the space <clears throat> um, for us to talk about something like the demands of the cross without ourselves leveraging our power, our authority, our influence to, um, to satisfy those demands. In other words, you know, there are, almost undoubtedly, there are, there, are, there are people here in this room, even now, as there are week to week, who will, from time to time, hear a truth that is very difficult for them to hear and to bear with it. And so what we do then is we, again, we continue to proclaim the truth, but we come alongside with a heart of a shepherd, Right? This is uh, the responsibility of the entire spiritual community. We come alongside those who aren't there yet. You know, I, I, I hesitate to even say that as if, like, I'm there <laughs> and others are not. Right? Because we know that the, 
the, the journey of following Jesus, it's a continuum that takes us to the end of our lives. You know, from time to time, any one of us here today should expect to encounter a truth from God's word that contradicts some part of our lives. Um, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have, at some point or another, been in an environment, either with people or all by yourself, listening to or reading something, and you encountered a truth that contradicted some part of your life? Um, well, guess what? That ought to happen, <laughs> right? Because other than Althea, None of us here is perfect. And so we ought to expect from time to time, it's like, ooh, that one, that one stung a little bit. Um, the, the, the manner in which we handle, like when a truth is proclaimed, that contradicts some part of our lives, right? It's gonna vary from person to person depending on where we are, our ability to, um, to bear it. And that's why I'm so glad that God is, for us, intolerably patient. <laughs> I, I say intolerably, like to us, I mean, if you had any idea, any sense of just how patient God was, none of you, none of us, would actually wait for him, right? God is incredibly patient and long-suffering. And so we want to proclaim the truth, but we want to do it in a way that it is proclaimed with humility and empathy and accompanied by God's power. Paul goes on to say, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this speaks to the kind of Jesus around whom the church has gathered. Do you know that we have, in our world, we have created a terrible number of Jesuses. You know how many Jesuses there are out there? The three. Good guess, but wrong. Way more than three. Um, so glad we got a future preacher here in the room today. Right? I, I, like, haven't, haven't we been guilty of creating the Jesus that best fits what we most need or want from him? We have created all these Jesuses through our hearts and our imaginations. And Paul, he brings us back to a very, very specific Jesus. And that specific Jesus is Christ and him crucified, right? Christ in the sense that he is the anointed one. He is the king who rules over a kingdom to whom all allegiance is due. Right? He is not, um, he's not the CEO of an organization. Uh, he is not, you know, the leader of, you know, some particular, he is the king. Uh, think about the allegiance that you and I owe to 
the king, right? So he is the Christ and him crucified. It's a, it's a very specific, very particular kind of Jesus. In fact, the Jesus that Paul preaches, he says, Jesus can only be preached as the one who was crucified. Any kind of Jesus, any form of Jesus that fails to remember this modifier, right? That is the one who was crucified reduces Jesus into something that he is not. To just speak of Jesus as a prophet or a teacher, a good man, a good model for how we ought to live our lives. No, he is the king. He's the Christ and him crucified. Why is this so important? Because when you move away from Christ crucified, one of two things is going to happen. Either A, you're going to get a religious system that depends on human authority in order to maintain order. And haven't we seen that, right? Like, haven't we seen um, uh, religious institutions doing everything they can to get, to secure, and to maintain their power over other people? Why? Because the power of God is not at work. The power of God is not present. The message of Christ crucified has been lost. And so what do we have? Well, we have an organization that just wants to survive, and so what it does is it leverages whatever authority it can muster to maintain order among the body. Or if you don't get a religious system that depends on human authority, then you get a godless system that offers no redemption. And again, you will find forms of religion, even things that call themselves Christianity that are in fact godless, and that offer no real redemption for the problem that you and I each experience, this universal problem of sin and separation from God. And so Paul says in verse 4, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's Power. And so I ask again, what will our faith be based on? The church, um, the church will only be a mess. I mean, it'll the church can look really, really good, but it'll be a mess ultimately if the 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 faith of the people in that church is based on these kinds of things. Number one, the oratory ability of the preacher. How many churches have grown because people were attracted to a preacher, to a personality, to that man, to that woman, and became followers of that person rather than followers of God? The church is a mess if we, our faith is dependent upon the music. <laughs> um, you think of all the money that is spent on going to concerts, right? These professional performances of music because of how entertaining they are. Not just entertaining, but like for some, they'd say, oh, it's just such a life-giving experience, right? And, and a church might say, well, why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't a, a, um, a concert caliber music ministry attract more people on a weekly basis? Guess what? It would. But if that's ultimately the thing that the faith of the church is based on, 
This can be a mess. If our faith is based on the programming, uh, uh, which of us isn't looking for, for good and wholesome programming for our kids or uh, you know, for even, even for us uh, as adults, as teenagers, to be a part of, right? We, um, uh, the, the programs that a church can offer can become a really attractive option for people to come and be a part of that church. But again, if it's all about the programs and all the while the power of God is missing, well, to what end? Um, what about just being in a place that makes you feel good? I, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but like one of the things, I mean, I want to walk away from my time together with you, like feeling good, right? Like I, wanna, I want to feel good that we've been together. I want, to feel, I want it to feel good when I've, um, when I've gotten together with two or three or four people um, and had a, uh, a spiritual conversation or just some kind of fellowship as brothers and sisters. Like, I, you know, I want for my church to make me feel good, but if, if, if people are just going to a worship service on Sunday mornings in order to restore their good vibes to get them through the rest of the next week, well, to what end? So what will our faith be based on? Paul says, I want your faith not to be based on human wisdom, but on God's power, on God's power. If you read through scripture, you'll find that there is this, um, you know, one of the one of the features of, 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 you know, kind of the narrative of the Bible um, is this ongoing saga that positions God's power, which is real, uh, against other powers, which are not, right? You, um, you read these stories um, where you find God's power being positioned against um, the unreal power of the gods of the pagan nations, um, you find the power of the creator of humankind positioned against uh, the idols that were created by humankind. And you find God's salvation positioned against um, the, nas- the, the, the national alliances that like Israel, you know, back in the day, Israel would form these alliances with neighboring countries, even though they were instructed not to do that. They were instructed to trust in the power of God's salvation, but it was just, it was easier for them to trust in the strength of other people, right? And so we have this ongoing saga of, um, you know, God's power over and against human um, power or like what Paul talks about, human wisdom. And why would we want to substitute God's power with something else? Why is, why is this such a problem for us? Um, let me suggest to you three things. Number one, if, if we're actually going to see the gospel proclaimed um, and accompanied by God's power, we have to be people of prayer. The reason why we substitute God's power for something else, the reason why a church would say, you know what, I'm going to, we're gonna, we're gonna work really, really hard to feature the very best programs a church could possibly offer, right? Not, like what we're gonna be known for is our programming. Other churches are gonna come to us and try to find out how do we do such great programming, right? And I'm not saying that great programming isn't important, um, but great programming in the absence of God's power being demonstrated, that's, that's a problem. And so why do we do that? Well, we do it because um, in order to experience God's power, we have to be people of prayer. 
Without prayer, we are only doing as much as we can. And so what we have to do is we have to stop thinking about prayer as an add-on to what we're doing or what we want to do. Um, we just did, you know, had this great event yesterday, right? Um, I, I believe we ministered to uh, many, many families, hundreds of kids, right? Lots and lots of families. It, it was beautiful. I'll bet, um, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but... Um, Magnus is in the room. I'll bet that the, the, the group of people, like the, the leadership team, which I was not a part of, I had nothing, like, I had nothing to do with yesterday, absolutely nothing. Um, that leadership team that planned all of the stuff, I'll bet you they, they met at least, you know, once a week for the last, I don't know, few months. I'll bet at some point in that meeting, they said a prayer. Is that safe to say, Magnus? He's like, mm, sometimes, right? <laughs> All right, Magnus was praying a lot, right? So, and, and we do this. We do this in church world, right? Like, we, we got this thing going on, and it's like, you know, dear God, bless our efforts. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that being a people of prayer? You know what we need is we need, we need for something like what happened yesterday, yesterday to be bathed in prayer. Not, not, you know, God help us to do a good job and help everything to go just right and help the weather to cooperate. But God, I understand that outside this physical realm, there was a battle going on in the spiritual realm. And I know the enemy and his dark forces have their grips on the hearts of men and women and boys and girls in my community. And I know that right now, they have no idea who you are, how much you love and value and care for them. They have no idea what you have done for them, how you have given everything so that they might have a relationship with you. And so, God, I, I want for these walls to be torn down in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, right? We, we need to be people of prayer. We need to understand that, um, you know, we can barbecue the best hamburger in the world and hand it to somebody. And yes, that is a gesture of love and a wonderful thing to do. But what we need to, more than anything, we need to see a demonstration of God's power, and that's only going to come as we commit ourselves to prayer. Oswald Chambers says, many of you have heard this before, prayer does not equip us for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Secondly, we have to, again, we're talking about, like, why do we settle for something other than the power of God? Um, right? One is because it's hard to become a person of prayer. It's hard to become a people of prayer. Like we wanna, we wanna use our own intuition and um, you know, our own strength to do what we want to do, right? We, we have to surrender ourselves to the power of God in prayer. Secondly, we have to pursue a life of holiness. If you're a Christian, you are a follower 
of God who now belongs to God. That is, your heart belongs to God, your mind belongs to God, your body belongs to God. We make one of two mistakes oftentimes when it comes to holiness. Number one, we just neglect it, right? Because the idea of pursuing a life of holiness sounds old-fashioned or unnecessary. And it results in a life that is just no different from the life of a person who is not yielded to Christ. How many people are just, um, they, they call themselves a Christian, but there's essentially no difference between their lives and the non-Christian person. Why is that? Well, it's because they've just neglected the urgency of pursuing a life of holiness. The other problem or the other error that we make is in the other direction where we avoid contamination with the world at all costs, right? We, we separate ourselves so much um, so that we, you know, here's a, a, you know, a common phrase that's been used in Christianity for some time. We become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. You ever known a Christian like that? It's like, oh yeah, they're spiritual, all right, but like, what good are they in the world? And so, like, our pursuit of holiness becomes an objective in and of itself. But in trying to avoid anything that might be ungodly, we invariably end up avoiding the ungodly. And our lives no longer come into contact with those that need to hear and experience the power of God. Third thing, we have to be willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to sacrifice. Um, we do other things in church to build the church in the absence of trusting in and depending on the power of God because sometimes of our unwillingness to sacrifice. People are not going to come into the kingdom because of really good sermons or because of really good worship music. I mean, they may come to church, but they're not going to come into the kingdom. They're going to come to the kingdom because of the power of God at work in the hearts of every single one of us. And so as we close our time um, together this morning, let me just share with you um, what I hope uh, we begin to see more and more of in our church. Because you might ask, well, like, how do I know that my faith is based on the power of God? How do I know that, like, we're, like, what we're trusting in is, in fact, the power of God? I think there are two pretty key indicators of that. The first one is we will see personal transformation. That is, there will be real change taking place in people's lives. Like, real change. In you <laughs> and me. That God will really be changing our hearts and our lives if his power is truly at work in our church. Um, that may, for me, it may look more like, you know, God is he's more on my mind, even beyond this time that we have together. 
uh, that I find more and more throughout the day and throughout the week, I can't get them out of my head. Obedience to Jesus will be more in my heart. Interest in myself will give way to an interest in others. I will find myself being grieved by sin's destructive power. I'll be compelled to bring hope to the hopeless, to recover those who are lost, to bring healing to the broken, to restore worth and dignity to the dejected, to care for the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, right? Personal transformation will be happening all throughout our church. You and I will come one way and leave another. Changed, different. Over time, the change will be increasingly dramatic. From where Jesus has brought us to where he has brought us to now, right? Personal transformation. And there will also be communal transformation. That is, there will be a genuine shift in community where foes become friends, where walls which separate and differentiate from people will be broken down, where classes and hierarchy will be overcome by a new status of equality. You know, people form clubs and organizations and associations of all kinds of interests and hobbies and and aspirations. It's a really strange thing for people to be united by something like the cross, by the Christ and him crucified. But that is exactly what our church has to be anchored in. I pray that our faith will not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God.